0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's been 30 years since the Tiananmen Square crackdown. The real details have been scrubbed from the record in China, but millions know what happened. Our correspondents reflect on that horrific day and on how hard China must work to keep it out of the national conversation. And it's tempting to imagine that requiring immigrants to speak the language of their new home country would lead to more unity. It doesn't. What might help is giving them more time to learn. But first, today marks the 30-year anniversary of the Tiananmen Square crackdown. In April 1989, demonstrators, mainly students, began to gather in Tiananmen Square to mourn the death of Hu Yaobang, a relatively liberal Communist Party leader. Soon, they began calling for political reform. Protests spread beyond the city, and the government's patience began to wear thin.
0: Late Sunday afternoon, military helicopters again flew over the square of heavenly peace, dropping leaflets calling on the protesters to leave. Yet, with fists clenched, the students pledged to stay on to the death.
1: In the early hours of June 4th, Chinese troops rolled into Beijing, firing at crowds of people who blocked their path. Hundreds, if not thousands, were killed. Two of our journalists were there at the time, covering the events for the BBC. So, James, one of my
2: strongest memories of that time is on the evening of June the 3rd, when I had got into the Beijing Hotel just near Tiananmen Square.
1: Simon Long edits our international section.
2: And I'd come in from the east where the army had turned back and there was quite a sort of triumphant mood because, as before, people had thought the army wasn't going to shoot this time. And I got to this hotel room and communications were difficult. We managed to speak on the phone and you told me it's going to be a bloodbath. Do you remember why you said that?
3: In the evening of June the 3rd, we were beginning to hear reports from the west that the army had moved in, in force, along Chang'an Boulevard, some kilometres away from Tiananmen Square. James Miles is our China editor. But as they did so, were encountering residents at roadblocks and opening fire on them.
2: And indeed, by that time, as I got to the Beijing Hotel, and indeed went round Tiananmen Square at that time, the mood was changing palpably to one of incipient panic. Already you could see tracer fire coming in from the West. It was unclear whether there were live bullets being fired or not. A lot of people thought there were. And at that point, Because, of course, we were radio journalists. You had to file the whole time. I remember I must get to a telephone, must tell people what's going on, got into the hotel, and then that was where my story of the night outside ended. The rest of what I saw, I saw from a balcony of the Beijing Hotel from where that famous Tank Man picture was taken the next morning, just a few balconies along, in fact. But as for what was going on in the square... It was impossible to know exactly. You could see wounded people, dead people being taken out, going towards hospitals. But you didn't know where they'd come from. So we still puzzled for months, for years, about what actually happened on the square itself.
3: Well, that's a crucial point. Uh, Who was where when is really a big part of the story of the night of June the 3rd and morning of June the 4th in Beijing. Many of the reporters, like you, were at the Beijing Hotel. Many others, having heard about the violence in the west of Beijing, headed out there to look, and I was one of them. And I went to a point along the extension of Chang'an Boulevard, out towards the west, maybe three kilometers or so from the square, and watched as the army poured in truck after truck. You could hear sirens as the ambulances moved up to try and uh, take away the injured, uh, angry citizens, you know, a few hundred yards back from that main road in fury and tears. I mean, it was an extraordinary night of emotion. And the many journalists who were there and witnessing this at that time saw a bloodbath, uh, a massacre. It was there was no other way to describe it. But what actually happened in the square itself was something of a mystery because so few journalists were actually there. There was not much happening for most of the night in the square.
2: Even at the other side, on the east, outside the square, the following morning, by, by the early hours, crowds were building up, would gradually build up. By this time, the whole square was sealed off with armored personnel carriers blocking the entrance to it. There were soldiers across the huge, vast expanse of Chang'an Boulevard to across the entrance to the square. But crowds were people would we'll come out to see what had happened. And when the crowd got to a certain critical mass at certain points through that morning, the army would just shoot people in front of the world's press, in front of us all.
4: What have you seen? I see everything here. And the troops enter the city and kill the people, kill the innocent people without any weapons. You
2: saw people moan down, 20, 30 people killed at a time. So... Naturally, one assumed, took it as read, that there had been a massacre on the square itself as well, um, which I Uh, think could be
3: wrong. You know, this uh, uncertainty about what happened actually on the square or on the plaza itself within the area, you know, defined by the roads around it, this uncertainty became something that the Communist Party put to enormous use in its efforts to confuse public opinion after Tiananmen and to convince people... In China, that the West had got this wrong. We kept referring to a Tiananmen massacre. There was a massacre in Beijing. It didn't occur on the square itself. But we ourselves were initially unsure what had happened, and the Communist Party leapt on that and to extraordinary propaganda effect.
2: For both of us, I guess it was. A life changing experience. And I think with both as you in particular, because you would broadcast in Chinese on the Chinese language service of the BBC a lot. And there was a sense of loyalty to an audience in China that um, seems like a, a bygone age now.
3: We often talk now of how Tiananmen has been largely forgotten in China, the success of the Communist Party in in erasing certainly public discussion of this, but also it seems memories. A whole generation has grown up now that um, has heard almost nothing about this. But then, you know, I, I go back to Beijing and from time to time I meet people and they ask me, you know, how long have you been in China? I say that it goes back to the 1980s and it becomes clear that I was there in 1989 and then suddenly the conversation will turn to that question. It's clear that for those who were there, for those who did experience it, it still grips their minds just
1: as much as it does ours. Tiananmen might live large in the minds of those who witnessed it, but Beijing continues to cover up the crimes. And censorship efforts ramp up whenever the anniversary approaches this year has been no exception.
5: The anniversary of the Tiananmen crackdown is always a time for very intense physical security and since the internet became a big thing has been a time of incredibly strict internet censorship. But this is a big one. It's the 30th anniversary and you're seeing even more extensive measures than usual.
1: David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief.
5: One way of knowing just how extraordinarily effective the propaganda and censorship has been over the last 30 years is that young people employed as private sector internet sensors have to be taught what happened in 1989 so that they can spot references to it and delete them. You're seeing not just the famous images that are known around the world of the young man facing down the line of tanks, so that image is absolutely banned, but even coded references to what happened. So certainly the date, which is normally called here as Lilsa, 4th of June, People talk about May the 35th as a way of trying to get around that. That's also banned. In some previous years, we've seen terms like today being banned on the day of the uh, anniversary itself. It's an unbelievably strict system of censorship. The most recent person to be put in prison, in fact, for three and a half years for commemorating the dead, happened in April. So this is a live issue. They are not mucking about.
1: And so you would expect to see no public acknowledgment of the event, any displays of dissent on the anniversary?
5: China's communist regime is playing a fairly cynical double game. So when they are talking to foreigners, who clearly do know what happened, they're saying, with a kind of unprecedented degree of unabashed pride, that they took the correct decision. So we saw China's defence minister was at a big international summit in Singapore over the weekend. He was asked about the protests in 1989. Then he said that it was the correct decision, and that anyone who came to China and saw the fruits of today's stability, so economic development, would realise that it was absolutely necessary to crush the turmoil. We're seeing that in English... So obviously not for most Chinese people's consumption. The editor-in-chief of a nationalist tabloid, Hu Shijin, who was in his day a student protester, put out a long series of videos and tweets about how the student leaders of 89 now realise that crushing the protests had been the right thing to do, but only aimed at foreigners and only in English, in Chinese, total silence and censorship.
1: But inside the country, there's a whole generation who might not have heard of this at all. How do they get taught? Is this talked about by the older generation in hushed tones at all?
5: A lot of people witnessed what happened in 1989. So an awful lot of people who now have college-age kids know exactly what happened. Because remember, this took over not just the centre of Beijing, but other cities around China. In all, tens of thousands of people were arrested. People's careers were blighted. Hundreds, if not thousands, were killed. So there's millions of people alive who know exactly what happened. One of the really sort of tragic things, I think, for pro-democracy activists, who are a very, very embattled, dwindling bunch now, is that an awful lot of parents have not really told their children anything at all about it because they see no need to burden their kids with that kind of political knowledge. So an awful lot of today's college students hardly know anything about it. There is also, you know, there's no accurate opinion polling. There are a large number of Chinese who probably think that what happened was tragic, but they buy the propaganda argument that the alternative was civil war and chaos. It's hard to know how many people believe that because the Communist Party isn't confident enough to have that debate in public.
1: And I I imagine it's easier to sort of gloss over it if in the internet age there aren't, you know, reminders all over the internet. But that must be an enormous job trying to scrub things.
5: It's a real reversal. So I was here as a previous posting 10 years after the protests. And I remember then people talked about how the internet was really taking off. And people would say these optimistic things about, oh, China will be completely unable to control the internet. Why? If you wanted to control the internet, they'd have to hire hundreds of thousands of censors to police it night and day. Turned out that's exactly what they did, and it's been depressingly effective.
1: But David, there still seems to be this brutal repression of the truth, if not of the people. I wonder if a comparatively prosperous China means that that kind of dissent couldn't well up again, and do you get that feeling?
5: This place feels very stable. It's certainly a huge amount more prosperous, and that grand bargain with the public that they can get rich if they stay clear of politics. You know, the economy is completely different. People can take foreign holidays, they can study overseas, they can buy iPhones and go to Starbucks. The only caveat is that if you had talked to clever British or American or European diplomats in the months running up to the Tiananmen process of 89, they would have said the same thing, that students were apathetic, that this was not a country that was ready to have any degree of turmoil. It was only a few years after the Cultural Revolution. The idea of students in the streets was anathema to the Chinese, and it turned out with the right spark that this place could actually take off like a forest fire. So any foreigner who thinks confidently that they know what's really possible here or could happen here is lying or is a fool.
1: But even with the right spark in the surveillance state that is modern China, is it even physically possible for that kind of protest to happen again?
5: It's a very good question. So a lot of people wonder whether the one thing missing from a really efficient police state 30 years ago was high technology. To get onto Tiananmen Square now as a Chinese person, there are kind of airport style security gates. There are facial recognition cameras. You have to scan your digital identity card before you've even set one foot on the square, they know your entire history, whether you're politically reliable. If you have any history of criticizing the government, which has ended up in your secret police record, you will be bundled away. So it is a much, much more tightly controlled techno-dystopian China now.
1: David, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thank you.
0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.
1: This week's guest on The Economist Asks, our interview show, was the businesswoman Ursula Burns. She made history 10 years ago when she became the first black woman to run a Fortune 500 company. But progress has been slow. The second was appointed just last month. Mrs. Burns revealed why she's changed her mind about using quotas to achieve
4: equality. I've been in, in business for almost 40 years. And we have been talking about this problem. We're half the population. Um, we're not anywhere near half. We're not even 10%. There are more CEOs named John than there are CEO women. You know, you heard all of that stuff. We have been pushing against this thing for, for a long time with the belief that if we just let them alone and give them the facts that they, the system, will change. Don't you get it? If we just kind of lay it out and give them the facts. So why hasn't it worked? Because the they who we're giving the facts to don't believe it's urgent enough to change it. That's why I say maybe what you do is to start mandating things. Saying, At what
5: level? Board level of a big company
4: like this? Yeah, I think board level is starts. I think, board level starts. I oh, think How high should it be? Half, 40%. Give me a number that's reasonable. You do the study of available people, whatever the heck it is, and you start mandating companies to get there. You say, basically, we need that many women on the board.
1: The Economist Asks is out every Friday. In May, President Donald Trump announced his new immigration plan. Along with a raft of other ideas he proposed language requirements.
2: Finally, to promote integration, assimilation, and national unity, future immigrants will be required to learn English and to pass a civics exam prior to admission.
6: Immigrants don't really need to be told that they have to learn the language of the country they move to. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. If they don't, it's usually because they can't, because language learning in adulthood is very difficult. And immigrants are working hard, so they also don't have the time. It is not that they lack the motivation. Immigrants know the need for the language much more than a native speaker who's never left can ever do.
7: My sister taught me two sentences, uh, I don't understand and please speak slower. And she just said to keep alternating them until I get somewhere.
1: Lev Golinkin moved to America from Soviet Ukraine when he was nine. He's written a book about the experience. When he arrived, he didn't speak a word of English.
7: People assume that just because you can't express your thoughts, you don't have any in the first place.
1: Without English, Lev's mother, a psychiatrist back in Ukraine, could only find work as a security guard.
7: As a child, you're kind of used to being helpless anyway, in many ways. Um, I think it was a lot harder for the adults because it was to them it's like you just uh, it's like you suffer a stroke all of a sudden you're you're deprived of your ability to do the smallest grocery store errand. you're 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 not able uh, to laugh. You can't share jokes or opinions or insights. You can't stand up for yourself in the situation. You're rendered utterly helpless the moment you
1: land in this country. Lane, Lev's experience suggests that laws requiring immigrants to speak the language of the, the new host country are kind of redundant.
6: Well, there are different kinds of laws. One is the purely symbolic law that says English is the official language of the state of Ohio. A number of U.S. states, I think more than half, have official English. But official status doesn't actually mean anything without other laws that sort of say... The services can be offered only in English or that certain other languages will not be provided for or, uh, for example, California's Proposition 227 in the 1990s cut off all of the bilingual schooling programs that have been going on in the state. So official status is only official and symbolic. Where laws seem inclined to help people— With either subsidized classes or opportunities to learn English, they can probably do positive good. Immigrants will seek them out to the extent they can and will take advantage of them wherever possible. They know they need English to get a better job. They're not stupid. And where the laws, on the other hand, are punitive or mean-spirited, they have the opposite effect, a sort of negative feedback loop. How do you mean? There's a great new study about this in the time of about 100 years ago, just after the First World War. The states of Ohio and Indiana didn't just cut off their bilingual teaching. They specifically banned the teaching of German and only German to elementary school students. Both of those states had big German populations. And by banning just one language, the community was in no doubt who that law was aimed at. And as a result, there was actually a backlash in the hope for assimilation. The Germans in Ohio and Indiana were less likely to enlist in the Second World War. Two decades later, they were more likely to marry within the German-American community and give their kids German names. You can tell by comparing those Germans with the ones just across the border in other states that had not banned the German language. This policy, which was aimed at assimilation, backfired at every level from the political and national to the very personal.
1: So an argument that by simply requiring or or nudging or encouraging people to speak the native language of the place where they are, the argument is often made that that will help with assimilation. This seems to suggest it's quite the opposite.
6: I think that anything that looks or feels or actually is punitive is counterproductive, Anything that looks and feels and actually is inviting is productive. National languages are a useful thing. Countries really can be and should be bound together by their speakers' willingness and ability to speak to each other. In America, there's one overwhelming dominating language, English, always has been. The rise of Spanish hasn't challenged that status.
1: So so what's the right formula? How accommodating should a country be in terms of making room for people who don't speak the native language. I mean, the, the the pointy end of this is, for instance, with public services. Should those always be, you know, advertised and accommodated then in every language of every kind of immigrant?
6: I think one no-go area is something like, for example, emergency services or the justice system. So if you go to a hospital, you should be provided for in In the uh, court system, you can't face a uh, an accuser and defend yourself – if you're not able to interact with the court system in your language. So that's one of those things that's both practical and, I think, principled. But if you give benefits sort of indefinitely, you know, economics in one lesson is that incentives matter, and if you make it easy or easy-ish to live for a long time without any push to learn the language, that could be counterproductive. But people need time to learn a language. You can't do it overnight. And the push to get a job too soon means that they will take a lower-skilled job than they could. If you have a doctor or an engineer from abroad, ideally, you want them contributing those high skills to the economy. That needs time to learn English. If you don't give them that, then they end up becoming something lower skilled and you have a sort of economic loss of that engineering or medical skill that you could be using.
1: Lane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.